there is, uh, in, the conversa- in the conversation of thermodynamics and science, there are commonly considered three laws of thermodynamics. Now, I'm not a scientist, so I'm not going to go in depth into, into their scientific significance. But the second law of thermodynamics has, is, has a name. It's known as the law of entropy. The law of entropy. And this is basic, the basic concept of, of the law of entropy. That in a system, whatever system you have, in a given system, that the complexity and order of that system will over time trend towards disorder. That whatever level of complexity you have and whatever level of order exists within that system, over time, the level of order will decrease, the level of kind of disorder will increase, unless, of course, you continue to invest energy into that system. So some outside energy is being pumped into that system to hold the, the order in place. That's, that's entropy. Now, for some reason, that matters to mathematicians. I don't know why. Um, um, but this is what it means to me. Your car will eventually break down. <laughs> or uh, your body will eventually fail. Or buildings de- de- deteriorate, roads deteriorate. What happens is over time, disorder and chaos and starts to kind of feed in. And unless you continually invest energy into maintaining these things, the trend, the trend will always be towards disorder. That is the law of entropy. And that happens every time unless you invest energy, unless acted upon by some outside force. Now, now stick with me because I want, I want to make a, a tiny jump here. Um, because while it is certainly scientifically true, I think it's more than just scientifically true. I want to suggest this morning that it's not just scientifically true, but it's also philosophically true, that this ball will want to roll down either side of that hill, that it's unstable on the top. That's not just scientifically true, it's also philosophically true. And let me show you, let me demonstrate how that works. Have you ever noticed how hard it is for you to keep a good habit? It's right after January, right? So some of you are on diets. Are you still? It's because it's late January. Right? You know, um, it's, have you ever known, I'm going to exercise. How long does that last? I'm going to do all my homework early. Really? I'm just, I'm like most of you. It's September 4th. I have all my new notebooks and all my pencils. And my red pencil is for math, but my green pencil is for English. And by the end of the semester, all my classes are jammed in one notebook because it's lighter and, you know, I write on the back, I write my English homework on the back of my math homework. And, you know, it, it's just how it is. These good disciplines that we try to foster, they are, they are in, inherently unstable. They, they want to erode versus the bad habits that we want to have nothing to do with. Right? That's the chaos and disorder of our life. And our lives naturally trend into those places. I have never, ever had to pastorally counsel somebody who says to me, I just need you to kind of help me watch a little more television. <laughs> Nobody comes to me that, that way. Nobody's ever written me on a communication card, please pray, please pray that I can eat more ho-hos. <laughs> it's, these things just happen. 
They're, they're easy to happen. They, they, they naturally happen. They, they are kind of, the, the undisciplined life is, is where the, the human life goes to just to rest. The resting state is disorder and chaos. But the disciplined life is one that takes tremendous amounts of energy just to kind of push the ball back up on the hill. Arist- Aristotle, this is before entropy, so he didn't talk about it with like a ball rolling down a hill or anything like that, but he did talk about it this way. He wrote a book about ethics, and he says this. He says that every virtue has on either side of it some vice of its extremity. So you take any virtue, this is kind of where the concept of moderation, that phrase moderation and all things, kind of originates at this level of Aristotle. He says that a virtue has on both sides of it a vice, that unless you, you intentionally focus your discipline towards achieving this virtue, you will probably default into one of the two vices on either side of it. Here's an example. Courage is a virtue. Certainly a Greco-Roman virtue is courage. And Aristotle would say that, well, courage is a virtue, but someone who doesn't have enough courage is a coward. And yet, the answer is not just get more courage, because if you pursue kind of the things that give you courage and you keep going, you end up being kind of a brash macho fool. So he says on either side of courage, there's something wrong. There's cowardice on one side and kind of rashness on the other. Patience is the same way. The, the patience, on one side of patience is impatience. And on the other side of patience is excessive inability to actually act out when you should be doing something. Right? God is long-suffering, not forever suffering. He's slow to anger. He doesn't say he doesn't anger. And so you see that, and that goes on. Virtue after virtue, your work ethic. Work, on one side of the work ethic is lazy slob. On the other side of the work ethic is workaholic. There's a virtue. And, and the whole idea is to say that in the life of disciplines, there are these, these vices, these valleys of vice on either side of the discipline that if you're not careful, your life will trend into because there's kind of a philosophical entropy about the way we live. I want to go a little farther. I want to suggest this morning that it's not just a scientific reality, and it's not just a philosophical reality, it's also a theological reality. That it's not just true in those, those places, but it's also true with regards to our standing before the Lord. That our, our standing of holiness before the Lord is not something that is inherently stable, but rather it's something that's prone to fall away. And in fact, we don't start on the top of the hill with God. We begin life in the valley. Or at least we're somewhere off the peak. The ball is rolling south the moment we come out of the womb. And so we find ourselves kind of down in the pit, in the pit of, of our relationship with the Lord, and unless acted upon by what? An outside force, we cannot reach God. We cannot reach holiness. We can't get up that hill or that incline unless acted upon by some outside force. We, this is the doctrine of original sin. I'm just another way of getting there. It's also the doctrine of total depravity, that our lives, left to themselves, left to our own devices, will descend towards sinful disorder and chaos. That is the resting place for humanity. That's the trend for humanity. It says in, in, uh, in Genesis chapter 6, right before the, the Lord begins to tell the story of Noah, it says this about mankind, and it's a trend statement. It says, 
and it's written there for you. I, li I like a different translation. It says, every imagination of man was always evil all the time. That part in Genesis, what it's trying to do, that whole section from Genesis 4 to 11, is trying to teach us the trends of mankind. When you go, why do we have all these stories? Genesis 4 to 11 is saying to the people, listen, without me, this is what will always happen to you. You will roll down the hill. And if I stay away long enough, you'll roll so far down the hill that all I have left is destruction. That's the trend. There's this kind of a theological entropy about our life, unless it's acted upon by some outside force. And this outside force is certainly encapsulated in the idea of the gospel, right? That because of our proneness towards error and sinfulness, God entered into our system with his son Jesus Christ, who died for our sins and was resurrected because of his righteousness, so that the relationship between man and God might be united. So that the, 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 the God might equip us to do every good thing. That's, that's the gospel at work in our lives. That is kind of the outside force, and it shows up in our life in three different ways. There's, I'm going somewhere. There's three different ways that it shows up in our life. The first is the Holy Spirit. To anyone who knows the Lord, God has placed in them the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is the hand of God in our souls to guide, direct, comfort, and convict us. Right? You know when you're thinking of doing something wrong, there's something in your spirit that says, don't do it. The agnostic calls it conscience. I think the Christian would say it's an elevated consciousness. It's the spirit actually speaking in us and, and giving us a burden for somebody and then giving us a caution against something and, and drawing us to things and repelling us from things. That's the spirit at work in us. That's one of these outside forces. It's more than you. It's God at work in you to kind of push the ball up the hill. That's the first. The second is the church. The church has been given to mankind as, so that Christ's body might be made manifest on earth. And the church is useful both in encouraging and admonishing and confessing and sharing and sacrificing for one another. And it's through the church and the Spirit that, that a Christian is kind of propelled once again towards holiness. You know that there's times when you've said no to your spirit, but you've had a very hard time saying no to your accountability partner. Because the church works when, it, when it's working. The church is working in unison with the Spirit. These aren't like lonesome island ideas. These are knitted together. The work of the Spirit and the work of the church. And then there's the third kind of force that's at work in breaking us holy, and that is God's Scripture. That the Scriptures convict, and the Scriptures inform, and the Scriptures teach, and the Scriptures guide. And they don't guide alone. They guide with the Spirit. And they guide with the church. We read them in the church and we discuss them among fellow believers and we seek righteous interpretation throughout various seasons and times of the history of the church. Among the church, what is God trying to say now? The church answers that with the Spirit. All of these are tied together. They're all working together to kind of roll the ball back. We're a city on a hill that can roll off the hill if it's not careful. But the Spirit, the church, and Scripture work to keep us there. It's, it's, it's a triune idea. There's the Holy Spirit, there's the body of Christ, and there's the Word of God, all at work to keep us holy before Him. 
This morning we're going to focus, we're going to focus on one particular idea, one of these forces in particular. We're going to focus on the role that Scripture plays in our life and through the, through the Spirit and how it plays in our church. And we're going to do that from Acts 17. Um, we'll be in verses 10 to 12. By the way, we're, um, we're in the church of Berea today. That's uh, where we are. Every Sunday in this sermon series, we're in a different church. Last Sunday we were in Jerusalem. This Sunday, Berea. We'll visit Corinth and Ephesus and on down the road. But today we're in Berea. I want you to listen, listen to the Bereans um, and, and how they are how this God-seeking community is. Remember, this is a Jewish synagogue right now. As soon as it was night, the brothers sent Paul and Silas away to Berea. On arriving there, they went to the Jewish synagogue. Now the Bereans were of more noble character than the Thessalonians, for they received the message with great eagerness and examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. Many Jews believed, as did also a number of prominent Greek women and many Greek men. The Bereans were of more noble character, it says. Why does it say they're of more noble character? It says it's because they received the word with great eagerness, and they did what? They examined the scriptures daily to see if what Paul was saying was true. Now, I want, I, want, I want to take, just notice two things about this Berean church. What, number one, this is a character issue about the Berean church. It's not a giftedness issue. The Lord doesn't write, the scriptures don't say, well, the people in Berea, they, they, there was a great gift, or the Holy Spirit descended on the people of Berea and gave them a word about Paul. This is a character issue. This is something that has gained the admiration of God about these people. That's the first thing. It's not some, a gift. It's wasn't a, they weren't lucky. This is, this is a character issue at work. And that's the first thing. And the second thing is, this is a community reality, not an individual reality. So Paul does not go into the church in Berea and preach, and everybody turns to the rabbi and says, what do we do? They received it. They examined and tested daily. This is a community idea. This is, this is a community of people, probably a small number of people, a synagogue in, in, in that area of the world is a small number who, who took it on themselves as a character issue, as a responsibility before God to know, search, and test God's word against what was being said by the world to see if it was in fact true. They were testing Paul and God looks down and says, they are of more noble character. This is not a program. This is not a a chance happening. This is culture. This is a Christian culture that's at work in this church to make them more godly. And I, this is, make no mistake, this is what we're trying to do this, this morning and through what we're trying to do and some of the things we're, we're approaching and touching on and pedal, we're trying to do this. We're trying to improve the biblical culture of our church community. That's what we're trying to do. We're trying to make 
the understanding and the familiarity and the comfort and the joy and the reception of God's word into our life, not my life, our life more so that we collectively as a community can test and examine the things around us. We desire to be seen by God as a church of more noble character. This is a culture issue. We desire and are convicted by the Holy Spirit that we should be a Bible-saturated culture. I'm not saying Bible-saturated instead of being Spirit-saturated. I'm saying in addition to being Spirit-saturated and church-saturated, we should be Bible-saturated. There should be a desire to be familiar, a desire to be biblically literate, a desire to know the stories, a desire to connect the stories, a desire as a church to be, to be able to have a language, a biblical language that understands who God is is practically this equals Sunday school that's not what I'm talking about but that's what it practically equals that one of the reasons when we step back and we begin to look at our, our at the life of our church on Sunday and examine them 10 months ago we began to do this we started to see that many people were not studying the Bible in our church building because things were so hectic here on Sunday. But there were people who wanted to go to Sunday school. But they couldn't go to Sunday school because they were doing kids' church this hour and then maybe nursery that hour. or They were working here and doing that or, or their spouse wasn't with them on this Sunday. And so they would ultimately, if they strived and strived and strived and they were, they were serving the church, if they were doing both, they might go to Sunday school a couple of times and then not a couple of times and perceived value of Sunday school went down. Now that's Sunday school. But what I see is I go, the Bible is being studied less. And so one of the reasons in Pedal we've tried to kind of pace things out is to say that there will be an eight-week period where you and your spouse can, if you so choose, go to a coherent, stable Bible instruction class where you study the Word with another group of people, and that whole room can be there for the entire same eight weeks. It's calm. You don't have to worry about getting pulled out. You can focus on studying the Word. There's continuity. You can ask questions. You can get to know the people in that room. If, if you're a stranger, well, you show up on week one. Everybody else is showing up on week one. We felt it would be more welcoming. That was our goal. Our goal was to affect the environment so that we could kind of foster a more biblical culture within our church. I guess that means that I want you to go to Sunday school. But I hope that's not what you're hearing. I hope what you're hearing is, is I'm convicted that the church needs to know the scriptures. That the scriptures, they save us. The spirit works through the word. When you open the word in a community of believers, God is there. That's what I'm saying. I want us to do that more. Some of you do it all over the place. Some of you have BSF and Bible study and mentor group and home group and life group. And, you know, to you, if you say, ah, I just don't go to Sunday school, I'm not, that's okay. I'm not preaching Sunday school. I'm preaching we ought to be a church that is familiar with the book. And it seems a little bit contradictory to me when we, we raise our kids on the stories that we stop repeating to ourselves. This is not a children's book. It's a book for the church. 
All right. Some quick thoughts. These are some anticipated thoughts that I wondered if someone might have. So someone may say this to themselves. Well, John, that may be your culture, but it's not my culture. And I hear that. I hear that. In our church right now, we are not nearly so homogeneous as we used to be. There's a very diverse religious culture that's here. We have many people from, I mean, wide variants of religious Christian backgrounds that are here now, of which the study of Scripture has been treated with a great, is equally wide variance. And the, the culture of this church has historically been Sunday school. There were, there were Sundays. There were Sundays when we were going in one service. You can look back on our records. When there were more people invested in Sunday school on a given Sunday than were actually in the room at worship. That means people came to church just to go to Sunday school. There were like 103% of those in worship that were in Sunday school. Now, there's a lot of reasons for that. We were in one service, so there's tons of cultural peer pressure. You know, you're going to slip out, and you're like halfway through the parking lot. Hey, Tommy! You know, and it's like, what are you doing? You're like, I'm getting my other Bible. I'll be right back. You know, you're like, ah, got to go back to Sunday school. I mean, so, so there was, but there was a culture. You see, that was a cultural idea that with one service, there was no way to kind of pull the quick one. And we knew, we knew this would happen when two services, two services didn't change us. Two services is revealing who we are. All I'm saying is, is we're trying to foster a new culture. So to say it's, a, it's our culture, but not your culture, I'm say, I'm, that may be true, but I'm here to say one culture is more commendable than the other. This isn't like, well, you can have your opinion, I can have my opinion. I go, God's weighed in. The Bereans are of more noble character. We should want to expand this culture. That's the first one. Some people may, whew, this may sound new. This is a big step. I've never done this. What does it mean? I'm going to have to wear a name tag. I don't know people. I, I hear all that. I hear that. I'm, my heart goes out to you. I want you to, there's good people in the church. I want you to get to know them. And so, so, so I think this is a good thing, but I'll, here, here's your way out. Are you ready for this? When pedal kicks off, there will be cycling Sunday schools. So there'll be a Sunday school that meets for eight weeks, and then the people in that Sunday school, most of them, will cycle into some kind of service for a period of time. Which means that if you kind of choose now to start going to Sunday school, you only got to go for eight weeks. It's like I've built in your own exit strategy. (laughs) I've been thinking of you. Like, eight weeks and you're out. And I understand some of you need, you need the end point before you can even consider the start point. And on the way to building a culture, I want to welcome you into that kind of environment. Some of you may say this, well, I don't know if it's worth my time. Like, what if I go to class and it's lame and boring? That might happen. Uh, I got two thoughts, though. The first is, our church is just as committed not only to teaching scripture as it is to cultivating new teachers, which means that there will be times when we have intentionally allowed the class to be less exciting because we're cultivating people who we think need to teach the word as the church grows. It's like in your car. Right now, my daughter, she wants to buckle herself into her car seat. It takes hours. (laughs) I want to shoot myself in the head, but she's got to do it herself, right? 
There's times when I say, we're just going to get there late so that she can learn. And so there's going to be some of that happening. There's going to be some of that happening. This is the second idea, though, which is this. And, and, and this is, is really the main idea here, is that when you say, this Sunday school class is not meaningful to me, and you take your ball and you go home, you're also suggesting that you are of no value to the Sunday school. Do you not think that God has placed you here to be a contribution in the study and examination and sharing of the word with others? But when you say, oh, well, they just don't understand me, my response would be, well, stay and help them. Or if you say, well, you know, nobody said anything smart, well, then you're obviously the smartest person there. I need you there. See, I've got them all figured out. We need you there. Finally, here's this one. Oh, Pastor John's getting all legalistic. Telling me to go to Sunday school. I'm not telling you to go to Sunday school. You're hearing me wrong if you're hearing that. I'm saying to you, you need to know God's word better. You got to know God's word better. And I cannot think of an easier time where more energy has been dedicated to the teaching of God's word than in a community of his believers on his day, I think it's a great starting point. That's what I'm saying. I was thinking, you know, we've been using this theme of riding a bike for, uh, we'll be using it the whole series, and I've I got to share some biographical story a little bit. Uh, and I'm not trying to brag, but I will enjoy saying this. I learned how to ride my bicycle at four. Yeah, yeah I'm proud of that. And it's funny the silly things you're proud of in life, right? And this is how I did it. By myself, I saw my brother and all the kids in the neighborhood zipping by on their, their, their cool bikes. And I wanted to be part of that. It incensed me that I would have to say, wait up. So I grabbed my little bicycle with the solid rubber tires and I walked it up the steepest driveway in the neighborhood, which is not that steep in Fort Walton Beach, Florida. I, I walked it up the steepest driveway I could find, find the biggest hill. I turned it around, I got on it, and I rode. Because there was a culture in my neighborhood that I yearned to be part of. It has nothing to do with ability. It has nothing to do with ability. It has everything to do with the fact that there was this infectious culture in my neighborhood. There were marvelous places that they were going on their bikes, like the woods. They were going to the woods, and I wanted to be part of that. And so because of that infectious just desire to be part of the bicycling pack of children, it drove me to do this. You know, when we move out to the farm, I've wondered, what incentive will Grace have, my daughter, to learn how to ride a bike? It's like, it doesn't do anything. I'll have to teach her how to shoot a groundhog or something. <laughs> Got to find, what, how, how does it translate to farm life? I don't know, but... but but, but you see the difference? There was this infectious culture beckoning me into the world. You're, you're, you, this is good and healthy, and there's freedom here. There's all this come and learn how to ride a bike. This is what our church should do. I'm asking our church, I'm praying that our church becomes infectious about its culture of enjoying the Word of God. It's not Sunday school. It's, there's life-giving words here. 
that the Spirit loves to use to come active. You wonder, ah, the Spirit hasn't spoken to me in a long time. I go, my guess is you haven't opened the Word and, and just dwelled in it. The Spirit looks for excuses to speak. And the best excuse it has is a heart that is trying to understand what God has said. I'm praying for a culture. I'm going to close with prayer. Um, this is a prayer or a meditation. There'll be something behind me you can read. What I did is I wanted, I wanted the God's Word to be a commentary on God's Word. And so I went to Psalm 119. It is the longest chapter in the Bible. It's the longest psalm in the book of Psalms. And it's a love song to the, to the Word of God. The whole thing is about God's Word. So we're not going to read it. You're safe. But what I've done is I've gone through, and it's broken up. Psalm 119 is broken up into 22 sections based on the 22, 23 characters of the Hebrew alphabet. And so what I did is I've gone through each, each character in the alphabet, and I've pulled out a different, different concept that David latches onto with regards to the Word of God. And I just want to share that with you as we go through. Hear the Word of the Lord. This is the 119th Psalm. Aleph. Blessed are those whose ways are blameless, who walk according to the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep his statutes and seek him with all their heart. Those who walk according to the word of God are blessed. Beth. How can a young person stay on the path of purity? By living according to your word. I seek you with all my heart. Do not let me stray from your commands. The word of God is our guide to purity. Gimel. Be good to your servant while I live, that I may obey your word. Open my eyes, that I may see the wonderful things of your law. I am a stranger on earth. Do not hide your commands from me. We are strangers in this world. God's word and not this world's voice should be our guide. Daleth, I am laid low in dust. Preserve my life according to your word. My soul is weary with sorrow. Strengthen me according to your word. God's word provides a way out. Hey, teach me, Lord, the ways of your decree that I may follow it to the end. Give me understanding so that I may keep your law and obey it with all my heart. How I long for your precepts. Desire for God's truth is an issue of our will. We ought to desire to know God better. Love. I will walk about in freedom for I have sought out your precepts. God's word brings freedom to the soul. Zion, the arrogant mock me unmercifully, but I do not turn from your law. I remember, Lord, your ancient laws, and I find comfort in them. Indignation grips me because of the wicked who have forsaken your law. God's word gives us the proper way to view the world around us. Chet, you are my portion, Lord. I have promised to obey your words. I have sought your face with all my heart. Be gracious to me according to your promise. God's promises are in relation to our obedience of his word. Tet, you are good, and what you do is good. Teach me your decrees. God is good, and his word is a source of joy. Yod, your hands made me and formed me. Give me understanding to learn your commands. God has made us, and therefore we ought to obey him and know his word. Kapf. My soul faints with longing for your salvation, but I have put my hope in your word. 
My eyes fail looking for your promise. I say, when will you comfort me? God's word is the proclamation of our coming salvation. Our faith is anchored in the word. Lamed, your word, Lord, is eternal. It stands firm in the heavens. Your faithfulness continues through all generations. You've established the earth and it endures. Your laws endure to this day for all things serve you. God's word is eternally relevant, unchanging and firm. Nun, your word is a lamp for my feet, a light to my path. I have taken an oath and confirmed it that I will follow your righteous laws. We have committed ourselves to obeying God's word. Samak, I hate double-minded people, but I love your law. God's word is single-minded and true. I am. I have done what is righteous and just. Do not leave me to my oppressors. God's word instructs us on how to provoke God into action on our behalf. Pay, your statutes are wonderful, therefore I obey them. The unfolding of your word gives light. It gives understanding to the simple. I open my mouth and pant, longing for your commands. God's mercy and love flow in concert with his word. Tzade, you are righteous, Lord, and your laws are right. The statutes you have laid down are righteous. They are fully trustworthy. God's word has been tested and remains trustworthy. Kof, I rise before dawn and cry for help. I've put my hope in your word. My eyes stay open through the watches of the night that I may meditate on your promises. God's word is to be our constant meditation. Resh, look on my suffering and deliver me, for I have not forgotten your law. Defend my cause and redeem me. Preserve my life according to your promises. God's word expresses gentle and caring concern for the suffering. Sin and shin. Rulers persecute me without cause, but my heart trembles at your word. God's word is much bigger than the things of this world. And finally, Tao. May my cry come before you, Lord. Give me understanding according to your word. May my supplication come before you. Deliver me according to your promise. May my lips overflow with praise for your teaching me your decrees. May my tongue sing of your word for all your commands are righteous. May your hand be ready to help me for I have chosen your precepts. I long for your salvation, Lord, and your law gives me delight. Let me live that I may praise you and may your laws sustain me. I have strayed like a lost sheep. Seek your servant for I have not forgotten your commands. Our perspective towards God's word reflects our posture before the Lord himself. Will you pray with me? Lord, we recognize before you that we are unstable by ourselves, that we are prone because of our sin towards disorder. Father, that we are destined to fall unless you act upon our life. And Lord, we thank you. We thank you for Christ who's made the way possible for us, Lord. We thank you for his work on the cross, his, his giving of the Spirit, his establishment of the church, the power of his resurrection, and the hope for new life that comes to us, Lord. We thank you for all of that. And I pray, Lord, I pray that we might foster a more godly culture within our church, one that sees the teaching and knowing and telling of your word with high esteem and with great power. And I pray that, Lord, so that we might be seen as a church of more noble character. 
In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, before you stand up, I want to talk, I need a minute or two about these posters. Over there on the walls are, is a kind of a list of everything that we need done on any given Sunday. And it's divided into two because essentially half the church would be helping while the other half studied and then it would flip and half the church would be helping while the other half studied. What I encourage you to do, first of all, is to go over and look because what you'll find is we've already populated the posters. Uh, I mean, they're 80% populated. Most of you know that your name's up there. Some of you don't. Big Brother has been at work. Relax, relax. No, no, many people, many of the ministry leaders have, have been coordinating for months, and so we've populated the names and the charts with many names, which is, should be encouraging to you, because if, if this is a new thing for you, you can walk over and you can see who's already helping out in a various place and who you might want to partner with and, and, and how many people are actually on a slate to do it for an eight-week period, so you can go, oh, okay, we won't be working all eight weeks. There should be a lot of encouragement over there, but there's... Some of the leaders will be here. This will be up for three weeks. And so I want to encourage you. By the way, if you're a guest with us, I'm not trying to rope you in. So just enjoy coming to church. But if, this is your, if, this is your, if we're your people, that's what I'm saying. If we're your people, go over take a look. First of all, to make sure your name's in the right spot. Secondly, to make sure that your name is, if you're married, on the same pedal as your spouse. Because otherwise, you're in trouble. So we really care that we want you on the same pedal For 20% of you, you love these things. And you're like, all right, where do I sign up? And I would say you can go over there. The one thing I would say is if you really like coming to the 1030 service, don't sign up for like 1030 nursery because then you can't come here. So do something at 9 o'clock. And some of those have the times written on them. Um, Otherwise, if you just want to go over and look or understand better, because for the 60% of you, you may be like, eh, eh, posters. Still, go on over there's people, because there's 20% of you who don't like me right now, you don't like posters, you don't like commitment, you don't like sign-up. I, I hear you, I feel you, I, I feel for you. What we've done is we've actually taken real human beings and we've put them beside the posters. So there'll be ministry leaders, so you can kind of go over all reluctant and talk to a human, and you don't have to pick up a pen or anything, they'll just talk to you, make you feel comfortable, and then they'll go for the kill when you're least expecting it. <laughs> Right, but but what I just want to, I want to ever encourage you just to, to kind of make this part of your your Sunday process here for the next three three weeks or so, um, and consider maybe where where the Lord's calling you to help.